This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So let me ask you something okay. about this incredible film. <clears throat> this is a film in which you had to make somebody uh, you know, look puffier, younger, older, fairer, skinnier, I mean, under all those mm-hmm. circumstances. And on top of it, it had to be consistent, even in the color segment. Was there any, uh, any, anything you had to do to keep, because color you know, requires a different set of, of you know, a kind of uh, uh, you know, makeup and mm-hmm. colors, right? How, how did you keep it consistent? Well, the difference, it, not too much changed at all. But in, when you're shooting black and white uh, uh, with, in color, um, you can have two colors <coughs> right next to each other, and they will photograph exactly the same. So you have to do tests. Somebody could have a gray shirt on and a blue shirt, but it's the same tone. So Michael Chapman, the uh, director of photography, had a big Polaroid camera, and he Polaroided everything mm. before it ever went on, on film to make sure that there were values there. And uh, otherwise, everything would just look the same tone of gray. Uh, it's, it's so a, it's just a lot of testing that you normally don't do on a film. I mean, we had 18 to do with this. months yeah. you worked on this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like uh, you know, the, the span of several films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and it's very uh, convincing. I mean, part of it is that... Um, <clears throat> this is a film about violence. And violence has to kind of show, not only on the face, but on, on, on the texture of the skin to some extent. His life is unraveling, right? And so his entire face has to show that unraveling. Otherwise, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not you know, we don't buy it. And uh, every time he's hit... Every time we have to feel that suffering right through his body, so to speak. And he did. He, he literally, he trained so thoroughly that the trainers were saying that he could actually go into the ring. And he was down to 155 pounds when we started the show. And all the fight scenes we did at that time from actual research, from all the fight scenes. And they said, in the ring, he probably would win a lot of the time. Wow. He was so, I mean, when we broke uh, for lunch, he would go to train. He wouldn't eat lunch. He would go to the gym and continue. Uh, the shape he was in there, he, he's never seen that <laughs> since then. Because from, from that uh, 155, he went to 180 uh, for yeah. that little midsection there. Yeah. And then he went up to 215 for the big one. Yeah. Uh, it was a simple diet of a dozen glazed donuts for breakfast and going to uh, Carmine's, an Italian restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard down south, and stuff himself with pasta. I know he would always offer me a donut and I'd never take it, so I felt guilty. Wow. Taking, well, he'd only get 11 at that point. But it was interesting in making him up because I had a chair that would literally go down like an operating table. And I'd crank it all the way back and literally be able to get right over his face 
and work to be able to blend his nose down and his eyelids. Uh, Gene Riley, hairdresser, who's passed away, curled his hair. Also in that very last scene, one night before we started that scene in the, uh, at the very end, we wanted to thin his hair out. He didn't want to put on a bald cap and a wig. He wanted his own hair. That's, that's how dedicated he was. And Gene and I literally, for a couple hours, combed his hair forward and with little scissors clipped out every other hair, combed another row forward and clipped out little hairs uh, until we got the whole top of his head thinned out. So it's, uh, but he's that type of a person. It's, it's so strange to see him now in these comedies that he's doing because the ability of this man uh, to be able to get into the skin of the characters. And I saw people come up to him uh, on, the, on the sidewalk and want to talk to him about one of the films, like, oh, what about Raging Bolt? But we were doing True Confessions then. And it's like, he has shed, like a reptile, he has shed that skin, and he didn't want to talk about it anymore. It was gone. It was gone out of his life. And he's <coughs> on to a new character. Now, with all the comedy, he could probably tell you all about who shrunk the kids or whatever. It was... In, in your book, I, I uh, almost, uh, I mean, I kind of jumping around, I mean, I almost finished, which is, I couldn't put it down. I mean, it's so much fun. It's really a great read. Um, and at some point, you actually talk about the fact that um, you had to take a, a, a plaster cast mm-hmm. of La Mota, right? Of... Well, all he would let, in fact, Lamada's nose is over in the museum. It's in the, on exhibit <laughs> over there. Uh, I met Jake, and I went. They sent me to New York to do a whole like, front face cast on him. And I met him at the uh, Third Street gym, and I told him what I was going to do. And he goes, no, you're not. Well, I'm supposed to. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, you find with a lot of people like this uh, are claustrophobic. And they really oh. tough guys. Yes. You know. Uh, women, never a problem. I, I've never had a woman have a problem having her face cast, including Elizabeth Taylor. Um, so I finally talked him into the, the one piece I really needed was his nose, about that much. And that's what's over in the museum, is just his nose. And uh, he, he says, I'll give you a minute. And I go, oh, great, that's all I need. Well, that minute went out like one, two, two and a half. Uh, is it really takes about five minutes, but uh, you know, and he sat long enough because I didn't want him to rip it off his face. Yeah, and, and uh, that's that's something that surprised me. You know, you said the tougher the guy, uh, the more resistant he's going to be mm-hmm. to have this kind of you know moment mm-hmm. of claustrophobia. And and if you'll notice in the film too, <clears throat> he was always leading with his head. So I mean, you might be wondering. Why would somebody put their head out there and get hit all the time and take, take that kind of punishment? Lamada had uh, his skull literally was thicker wow. than the average human skull. And he would lead with his head and take all the punches. He didn't like to get hit on the body, and he had very little delicate hands. So, but he was very strong and be able to do the punches. But that's why when you see him taking these terrific hits to the head, he was able to really absorb them. And, and another thing that I've noticed as I was watching the film is the great contracts that you managed to create between the skin texture of Lamata and his wife. When they are together at the beginning, she is diaphanous. She is, you know, she is transparent. I mean, her skin and his skin is already 
kind of tough and mm-hmm. weathered, you know, mm-hmm. and you have these two together, and the contrast couldn't be more apparent, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's beautifully done, really beautifully done. Um, and, and uh, you know, you, you start with that first uh, uh, contrast between the two brothers, and then that's the first blood you know, that kind of spurts out and, and from that moment. And, and uh, there is a little moment of, of discontinuity there, by the way. Was it really? Yeah. I missed that. Yeah. You mean he bled before you got hit? No. In the second, the second time we see the blood, the splotches are not in the same place. Um, but the reason why I noticed okay. that is because in your book, yeah. you point out the confetti scene in, oh, in New, York. New York, New York, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so I was looking for that stuff. Well, you know what happens with that? Uh, when Scorsese films, they will film it over and over and over again. And his filmmaker, or his editor, Thelma Shoemaker, yeah. she has been with him. Both of them were teachers at NYU. Right. And she was an editor. He was teaching, directing. And she has edited all his films because nobody else can. When he shoots things over and over again, especially when he's working with De Niro, they will film things uh, and they don't always react the exact same way every time. So Thelma might have had that other shot could have been from take two or three or four. And so it's, it's... it can happen in a Scorsese film. No, but as I said, yeah. I mean, the reason why I noticed is because you point out yeah. the painstaking work oh, that was a you pain. had to do that was a pain. when an extra threw confetti, yeah. right? Well, the, in New York, New York, there's no <coughs> scene. It's New Year's Eve. And we have this nightclub with a thousand extras in it. And this man was not told to do it. But it's when De Niro walked by the table, he goes, Happy New Year! And he throws confetti in his face. And so having makeup on and his hair all slicked back, the confetti stuck to his face and to his hair. Now, normally we would have gone back, taken it all off, and cleaned him up. And all of a sudden, uh, Marty and De Niro were in a, in a conference, and they go, we like it. Let's keep it. We shot that scene. It took 10 days to shoot it. So every morning, if there was a pink piece here, and this is the days of Polaroid, um, I'd take the Polaroids out from side, front, top of the hair, back of the head, and I would, with my little angled tweezers and duo adhesive, I would have to replace every piece of confetti on his head every morning. Yeah. <laughs> that, that detail stuck. Yeah. That's why it just time I was takes, looking, you know. right? Yeah. All the time to put the confettis back. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> there is another, uh, another moment that I... I I mentioned, I mentioned it to you that I wanted to compliment you on. Uh, in your book, you talk about uh, Rocky, mm-hmm. right? Rocky, it's a great film. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's, you know, lately it's, been not, it's not been talked about much, but it's a great film. And your work, your, your genius, comes in at the moment when Rocky is, is almost beaten to a pulp, I mean, literally, right? And so he, said to, he says to his trainer, he has a big lump full of blood mm-hmm. and says, cut me, I'm going to go on, right? Um, and that's the moment when Rocky goes from being a pathetic loser to a tragic hero, mm-hmm. right? Because he's going to lose, I mean, that's the point. And you did what? Tell, tell them what you did with Well, I was trying to figure out how am I going to make blood spurt out of his face. Now, with, with De Niro, I literally had his face wired 
with tubes. In fact, out in the lobby, there's a, a box out there you might want to take a look at when you leave. It shows uh, the appliance on and the tubing that goes to a hypo. And so I was always within range, out of camera, but within range to be able to fill this hypo full of blood and go like that. And that's why we see the blood squirting in all the different directions. That would be CGI today. They probably wouldn't take the time uh, to put that all together because they could control that with a computer real easy. And they wouldn't have to worry about cleaning them up for take two or whatever. They could, uh, they could do it. Um, it's, uh, where was I? I get, I get off on tracks. I told you I'd get off on tracks. Let's get back to the CGI issue. What do you think about you know, the, the, the future of CGI with, in, uh, with oh, respect to it's, makeup? It's, CGI is already here. <coughs> Um, when it first started, they, everybody was going, oh my gosh, it's going to replace the makeup artist and blah, blah, blah. Well, even with CGI and things, the actors are little buttons. I'm sure you may have seen it on television or put on them. And an actor will play the part. And then the character will be uh, built over the top of them in the computer. Right. So, and, and on Star Trek, we were able to build some aliens I couldn't build. Things that had long necks or long arms and long fingers and things that just would have been kind of phony. So uh, it, it, it worked well by bringing the CGI into it. Uh, the Borgs, if you're familiar with the show, were like the zombies. And we had in this one scene 11 Borgs, and they were expanded into 1,000. So that's the use of CGI. I mean, you couldn't afford, and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't hire 1,000. Couldn't hire enough makeup artists to put that together. Right. So I think it's finding a, uh, a, a nice bond together. Uh, sometimes I think it gets a little carried away on some of the action films, you know, where all of a sudden there's so many explosions and so many things going on. But the movie has been put together just for that, that effect. Not so much that it really means that much to the movie, but everybody loves to see cars blow up. And, uh, well, I like details of fingers being broken in Blade Runner. Yeah. And you did it. Yes. And that yeah. is one of the most amazing moments, right? When, when uh, he's, uh, you know, Decker is putting his, puts his hand, and he grabs, it and grabs breaks the finger and yeah. bends it and breaks it. How did you do it? That was a, it was a silicone <coughs> glove uh, that was made on his hand, uh, from his hand, and inside was a copper core. That, was, that looked like that, only it was a thin strip of copper that all went out into each fingers. That was put down into the glove, and then I filled it with sawdust, because sawdust just seemed to work really nice as opposed to cotton or something like that. It was, it, it, it's, it's tough enough, uh, it holds its shape, but it, uh, it, it's not that soft that you can see it uh, indent. And so with that even, be able to put the hand through going so fast and grabbing it and breaking the finger. And, of course, when they put the crack into it, I think that's what people react to more than anything. But, again, for take two, it's like straighten the finger out and let's do it again. Right, right. And and it works very, very effectively because that's, you know, Decker's martyrdom, Mm -hmm. you know, really has these religious overtones and, you know, the hand and and the nail and all these things. Yeah, well, there's there's another scene in there where uh, Rutger Howard puts his hand up on the wall and he takes a nail and he shoves it in his hand and blood splatters all over the wall. And just before, the day before we were going to film it, uh, Ridley Scott called me in and he says, you know, I, I want to change something. He says, I want the hand to 
face the camera and push the nail through and see the nail coming through and then have blood running out. And I was sitting with a lot of the executives from Warner Brothers, and they said, how long is that going to take us? What's it going to cost? And I told them, and they said, oh, we're going to film the other one. That's, you know, it's not going to be. And it's good enough. Yeah. I was, I was looking up some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, makeup artists, uh, and one of them said, uh, uh, you have to be somebody who understands lighting, the variations that various media can bring to the film, continuity, history, chemistry, right? A little bit of everything. You have to know all of the above, right? There used to be a lab down in um, Burbank where there was this little, little, the little old mad scientist ran this lab. Uh, Pyrotechnics were his specialties. But whenever I would come and have a problem trying to figure something out, I could always go to Ira and say, Ira, this is my problem. What are we going to do? Wow. And it, uh, he would uh, figure it out, especially like when we were doing Iceman. I needed to literally make an ice that I could coat John Lone's body with while he's defrosting. And uh, I, I, well, we had fish, we suspended fish scales in the methicel. And I had buckets. It's like, it's like there was no way of getting a quarter of a pint of fish scales. I had like five gallons of these things. I had them forever. You know. But um, again, there's so many things now. I have a box at home that's so big. It's an old Max Factor box. And it is filled with needles and thread and capsules and all the little special effects things that I would need over the, my career to be like when Stallone's sewing up his arm in Rambo, uh, these type of things. And I would say most everything in that box now would be CGI. Oh, really? Yeah. What is it that cannot be CGI? Uh, you know, it's, it's small things like a scar, scar, right. black eyes, right. um, and now with teeth, the, with all the, all the zombies movies that are you know yeah. TV stuff. I mean, that's not CGI. That's no. That has that's, to be makeup. That is makeup, and yeah. that's just a lot of rotting skin. <laughs> uh, that's I, I would say probably zombie makeup might be you know. <laughs> You see kids running around Halloween with that on. It's, uh, it's just for some, some reason, people have become fascinated with that. Uh, so it has caught on so much. that, uh, And it's still going. The and the sophistication is, yeah. of having to make each one different from the yeah. other. It'll, it'll change. Yeah, that's... Well, that, and that's it, too. You always do a variation on a theme. Same way I had with the Klingons in Star Trek. Right. I never wanted to have two of the same head on standing next to each right. other. Uh, right, and the absolutely. same with the zombies. You never want to have two zombies standing next to each other to look alike. You know? So they always have rotting skin in different places. <laughs> Let me ask you a question that fascinates me. When you speak, when you talk with a director who wants a particular effect, what language do you use? It's like, how do you describe? What do I want? Now I'm thinking about Ledger playing, you know, in, in Batman, you know, and so what do, what do I say to you? I want it smeared. I want... The, the, a lot of times, the, they'll, they'll let the director, or they'll let, let the, the, the makeup artist, if, if they have one they really trust, they uh. will leave it up to them. Now, if they, if they said, I want the face to look smeared, and they'll probably do a couple makeup tests, and they say, yeah, that's the right one. Um, it's usually a very quick dialogue because I when I would go to production meetings 
and I'd have to sit there and listen to wardrobe and special effects and all these things. And the conversations with me might last a minute. Um, so I always sat in the back room and took a book, uh, the back row. You know, That's remarkable because then they trust you to, yes. you know, yeah. to do it. Yeah. In fact, for the first, uh, for Next Generation, <clears throat> Deep Space, and uh, Voyager, I would literally go right to Clay. Uh, if if I would read the script, the scripts would never tell me what I had to do, so it would just say an alien, and then I would have to I would look and see what kind of a planet they were coming from, uh, what they were going to be wearing, and I had a, a massive library of everything of, of birds, of dinosaurs, of reptiles, of mammals, of bacteria. And I would just, I would go Bacteria? through these. Yeah, just, oh, it's amazing the things that, for, for, under micro, oh, microscopes. Yeah, yeah, for textures and, and things. Nice. Um, and because, I mean, once I had the forms, I had to be able to do something to yeah. the surface of it. And I would go through the books after getting it in my mind what direction I was going in. And usually four o'clock, when I had to do it, uh, that's the time I would pick out to do it because the phone stopped ringing and my duties and things were down. Mm-hmm. that uh, I would start to sketch for maybe an hour and put it together and uh, my concept and go with it. Uh, on Enterprise, the, the production people wanted more sketches. So I would literally uh, do maybe 10 sketches mm-hmm. with variations on the theme mm-hmm. for him and then send them up to the producer and he'd put a little star on the corner of which one he liked and then I'd go to work on that. But uh, up until that point, I would go right to clay <coughs> with everything. But when, in, in, in your book, you actually talk about uh, some of the uh, ways in which you could connect a mask to the features of the actor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that actually the actor would move the mask. Well, it has to really be glued down tight. Right. Uh, totally. Even like in um, uh, uh, Deep Space, Odo. Odo was a total, which the first test we did on him, he, they wanted kind of smooth skin on him, was a small piece, like a nose and an upper lip. Didn't work. He had too much texture here. So then we did cheeks, and then we did a forehead. And I had so many multiple pieces on him, we decided to go to a whole face. And that was glued down every day. It was started at the nose there, and then literally the artist would work outwards until he got the edges down. It came up here high enough for a wig to cover, and ended underneath his jawline here. And it, uh, so that gave him that really smooth look. And you, you can see, if you're not familiar with it, there are photos of him over in the museum. Yeah. Um, but when it's glued down that tight, no matter what they do on the outside, will, or on the inside, will register through the, the rubber. Yes. Um, I know that you also um, give back to the new generations of makeup artist, um, by teaching, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. like to, to uh, kind of model things. But you also had some great models, right? Yes. John Chambers, right? John Chambers was my mentor. mentor. John Chambers is the man that got the Oscar for the original Planet of the Apes. Uh, he was um, the main principal character in Argo. In fact, Argo was... Uh, uh, a saying that John would, would say. And uh, 
that, that story of Argo, which is interesting because it, it, it was, it won Best Picture, which is interesting because I, I wasn't direct, I was involved in other operations. Uh, John worked for the CIA for a number of years and most everybody that was working with John, we uh, were involved in some way. Everybody's still under secret clearances. I don't know why. Most everything we did was many years ago. Um, so he actually transformed people for secret nefarious oh yeah. reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, they, they had the head of the, back in Washington, he was able to transform himself from a man into a woman in less than 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, and the way the clothes was changed uh, very quickly. Wow. There, was a, there was one place in Washington down an alley where, with the new recruits that were following him, trying to keep track of him, if he could get down that one little spot, he could literally come out the other end as, <laughs> as a woman and fool them all the time. I love, you know, I love the idea. This guy just... <laughs> You know, doing all this. Yeah, it was Mission Impossible in 30 seconds. Yes, it's amazing. But, of course, uh, your family is your greatest inspiration, probably, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, because uh, this is also the 100-year anniversary of... uh, Tell us about it. Yeah, my grandfather actually uh, immigrated from England to Canada. Then he went to New York, opened a shop wound coming down south, uh, going through New Orleans, where my uncle Bud was born, and wound up in Los Angeles. Uh, the, my other uncles and my dad were all born in England. Uh, and I'm sorry to, yeah, to interrupt you, but right. you had me at you know, the opening description of your family. Mm-hmm. People with names like Montague and yes. Percival. Yes. I was there. I was like, you know, I want to know more about this family. <laughs> <laughs> Montague yeah, and Percival, yeah. <laughs> what could possibly? I <laughs> know uh, they were twins. Ern, <clears throat> Ern and, and Percival was, uh, and people would call him. His name was spelled P-E-R-C, and uh, nickname. And people would call him Perk. Well, you know, somebody would say, "Well, I knew Perk. We were good friends." Well, you knew they weren't good friends because Perk never let let you call him Perk. Um, but each one of the oh, so grandfather wound up in in Hollywood at that point, and in 1917 which is 100 years ago this year, opened a, the first makeup department in Hollywood. Uh, we have a star on Hollywood Boulevard, and that studio is very close to Hollywood and Vine, where we have the star. You have a family star. Yes. I don't know of any other families. Maybe, you know, some <laughs> acting dynasty. I think there's one other one. I can't think of who it is, but I don't know who. The Barrymores? No, they might individually be. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. You as a family have a mm-hmm. star, right? Yeah. No, it was it was, it was really it was an honor to uh, to you know get awarded, and it was we were uh, and it's done between eleven and twelve o'clock on wherever it is on Hollywood Boulevard or off the Boulevard, and it was right on uh, Vine Street, and. Where we were, right above, I don't know, 10 stories up or so, are apartment houses. And some man decided to water his plants right in the middle of our ceremony. No. And, who, and it's, I had my notes and pencil. I said, oh, my God, our ink is going to lose them. So I kind of walked off to the side as I watched it rain down the side of the building on the speaker. 
<laughs> at that moment. So it was fun. It, uh, but it was interesting to, you know, to show the star. And again, it's, there's, there's pictures of it in the beginning of the book there. Right, right. Um, and your, uh, <clears throat> your grandfather was also, what, a hairdresser to Churchill? Yeah, he was his barber. Unbelievable. Yeah, uh, back, that's before the 1900s. That's right. going back in the late 1800s. Right. And, and then uh, you say that he kind of created Valentino's look? My dad. My, oh, your dad My did. dad was yeah. Valentino's uh, like valet makeup artist, wow. drove his boat. Uh, if Valentino hadn't died, they probably would have remained friends for, <coughs> forever. Right. Uh, each one of the uncles... We're talking about Rudolf Valentino here. Um, Each one of the uncles actually had, were famous for something or other, you know, some some makeup. Uh, Bud was famous for the Creature in the Black Lagoon and the um, Abbott and Costello movies and things along the way. We did uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. It was probably one of the best pictures we ever did at Universal. Uh, I worked on Spartacus when I was going to school here. Um, I would go home during the summer and sweep stages and uh, pull nails out of boards for, uh, for money and come back and have a nice time. But uh, I was working You on... had uh, Woody Strode, one of my idols oh, when yes. I was a kid. Yep. When I was a kid, I was in love with Woody Strode. You know? yeah. and, and, and that was like, you have it, you know, his, his mock. Yeah, in, in, in Spartacus, <laughs> he's, he's a slave, and he's captured, and he's hung upside down by his feet. Uh, Kirk Douglas is there, and, and they basically... Uh, this body was in the, up in the laboratory where all this work at Universal was done where we had all the heads and the bodies and everything. And another apprentice, Ron Walters, myself, this is when Greyhound bus lines used to bring the tourists through several times a day. And Ron and I would run outside and would throw Woody's body over the balcony in front of the bus. And uh, I think we were the first attraction on the tour because they, they had two buses. And... Um, uh, four tour guides, and John Batham, the director, was one of the tour guides because his little sister was working in To Kill a Mockingbird, and he was her, basically, parent standby while uh, she was working in the film. Incredible. It's what an incredible story. Um, so, and, and uh, your mother was involved in the business, you know, everybody. My mother was a hairstylist. Um, everybody. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So, you were saying, um, when you create a look, Right, um, and in your book, you actually say that on occasion you were swindled by people, right, who were trying to kind of get something out of the fake look, right, yes. the transformation. Oh, yes, you know, somebody was counting card and had been banned from every casino. I thought I was going to. In fact, that's when when it came to light about that, I was literally in the ring on Raging Bull, squirting down De Niro. And some extra in the front row goes, oh, hey, there's an article about you in Sports Illustrated. I'm going, what? This man who was a card counter made a living at it. He finally had to quit. He was so brilliant in doing it. that He had to quit because he finally had been, uh, in Vegas, had been taken out in the alley and had the hell beat out of him. And warning, uh, because he was doing it by himself at that point. His name was Ken Houston. Uh, Ken was only late 20s, 30s, but he could memorize all the cards. But he didn't stop there. He created a whole gang that were sitting at the tables, and they, they communicated with hand signals. And when he first came to me, he said, I'm an actor, uh, 
and I'm doing a movie, and I need disguises. I need teeth and noses and all these things. So I made all these disguises for them and uh, showed them how to do it. I said, well, now you need to get a makeup artist. He says, no, they can't afford a makeup artist. I have to do these myself. So we did some classes and showed them how to do it. And then he would take his disguises to Vegas, and he would wear it until he was discovered. And then that would be discontinued, and he would start with a new disguise. Uh, there, there was another one where a man, again, came to the studio, said that there was a big contest in New York, or in Texas that was going on, and they all were throwing thousands of dollars into a pot, and there was like 30 of them, and the last person to be discovered there, the whole, everybody was going in disguise, last one to be discovered was going to win the giant jackpot. So uh, this is back in the 60s, and we, we gave him a, a bill, a very reasonable bill for our work, and he wrote a check, and uh, we waited, and we waited, and... Uh, Bud tried to cash the check. Oh, no, he, first of all, he called, and he says, don't cash the check. I won the contest, and I'm going to come back and split it with you. And it was quite a few thousands of dollars. So we were all salivating, thinking, oh, boy, money's going to... Nothing ever happened. So we never heard any more about it until one day... I was on the back lot doing a cowboy show called Alias Smith & Jones, I got a call to come in to the main department because there was a couple people from the FBI that wanted to talk to me. And they wanted to know what type of disguise we made up for this man because they didn't know what he looked like. He had gained weight. He had shaved his head. We had a mustache for him, uh, made it a nose, made teeth, uh, simple things that he could put on himself. He had taken this disguise to Vegas and held up a casino and then flushed it down the toilet. So uh, the FBI actually wanted to get a hold of him before Vegas got a hold of him, so they at least have a live body to deal with. And uh, he did. He, he, he came back, and he went to prison. And I, I couldn't have lunch with him, but my Uncle Bud did. Went and had lunch with him one day. But he actually he had a family with him, and a wife, and his kids and everything, and a beautiful car. But when it was all laid out to us, the car was leased. The wife, the kids, rented. Uh, were rented. No way. Yeah, they were all rented. So, yeah, and there was no bank on the check. That, so, that is fantastic. It makes a good story. <clears throat> it's a, you have you have some great stories. In fact, I want to open it up right to to, to the public because okay. I'm sure. Let, let me sit, make one more yeah. comment on on raging bull here. Um, with this work here, this was all done pre-Oscar. We didn't have a category yet. And so they had been giving special Oscars out over the years, like for John Chambers and Bill Tuttle, for Seven Faces, Dr. Lau. And so I was up, had been put up for a special Oscar for this. Now, had I possibly won, we would have never gotten uh, a category because it would have kind of disappeared again. But people were saying, are you going to get an Oscar for it? Well, no, there is no category. So... We did a great bid. I had a man that did a big push to try to bring it to the forefront because the Oscars usually gave out 10 or 12. This was a year that Henry Fonda got on Golden Pond, and they spent so much time giving him his special award. They did away with all of them except for one, which was Star Wars, won the same award for the second time for the same thing. But uh, as far as my makeup award, kind of disappeared even with all the PR. 
Uh, I even did a, a PR thing with, with Stallone where we sat in the middle of a ring and we talked about boxing and everything. It was eight minutes long and it aired um, the night before the Oscars and again near the end of the week. And it was like, okay, you know, we gave it a try. Uh, coming home one afternoon, I got a phone call from Faye Kanan, who was the president of the Academy. And she says, Michael, do you want to be a member of the Academy? I go, yeah, because normally you have to get sponsors, you had to make out paper, you had to, do, you had to jump through hoops to become a member. Uh, and so she said, fine, uh, send me the, the dues money and I'll send you a card. I'm the only one that I know of that ever got into the Academy that way. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, so it's, it was all due to uh, the work here. In fact, over in the museum, too, the whole script, The Raging Bull, right. is over there. Right. So, okay, right. questions. Hello. Um, Hi. Mr. Westmore. First of all, I would like to say it is absolutely incredible hearing these stories of one like amazing inspirational movie after another just like you know you have all these things under your belt and it's just such an honor to be able to hear you tell us your stories and your perspectives thank you you know i enjoyed my whole career (laughs) i really did and i had a great wife behind me we've been married i don't want to cry 51 years For my family, that's great, because between the rest of them, they've got 18 wives, <laughs> including my dad. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Um, my question is, I would like to go back to Raging Bull and um, really briefly ask you about this legendary director, Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you seem very well acquainted with him. I would like to ask, um, what is he like on set? How much command does he give over... Yeah, the creative decisions, including makeup, and um, did you ever, you know, share a martini with him or any any small stories like that? No, not I. My, I was very. Care- I want to say careful in my career, but at the end of the day, when we wrapped, I wanted to go home. I, I didn't depend on so having to socialize. Uh, I, I really just it was, it was my work and, and what I brought to it. And uh, I had a lot of production managers that would hire me over and over again because uh, I knew I was a hired employee there and I was going to do the best work I could do. I wasn't going to, you know, you hear people say, well, they're not paying very much, so they're going to get what they paid for. I was never like that. My whole team on Star Trek, we did, I took them right onto the features. I didn't hire new people. And I, was, I was actually told to hire new people for the movies. And I said, no, are you kidding? I've got the best there is in Hollywood right here with us now. So that's why these, uh, the episodes on Star Trek hold up on the, on the big screen. Um, so it's just I would get into it, you know, uh, as, as deep as I could, whether it's putting a nose plug up Burgess, Meredith, and Rocky, or, or you know, and I want to do everything. As an apprentice, I was trained in doing everything. I spent six months learning beauty makeup, watching Sandra D getting makeup every day. Uh, I spent another six months laying one beard after the other to the point you get so bored with it, you get very creative with them, which helps in, in, in making things look so real. Uh, then when John Chambers came into Universal, uh, we were doing the movie called The List of Adrian Messenger with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis and uh, uh, Robert Mitchum. And so I was able to, on that movie, 
really learn sculpting, mold making, and painting. Of which, if anybody here is a face-off fan, that's what these kids do. Uh, if you've ever seen the show, in 21 hours, they have to do that challenge. In fact, this is one of my loudest shirts from Face Off. Um, it's like new shirt every, every episode for 14 episodes. I've got a lot of shirts, you know. Um, but no, Marty is, uh, it, and it's interesting, in the, there was a scene here, which I forgot, in the movie when, is it De Niro picks up a chair and breaks it? It's his brother. Okay, Joey Joey does it. Breaks the chair. I was standing there when Scorsese, now his dad was in the movie all the time too. He was one of the good fellas, the older men that were in the movie. Uh, And Marty picked up a chair and smashed it to pieces like that on the side of a trailer. Um, And his mother's going, Marty, Marty, what are you doing? Don't do that. And he says, Mom, better the chair than you. Um... (laughs) But Marty grew up with asthma, really bad asthma, in New York. So it was very difficult during the summer times. His mother would put him into the movie theater and leave him there until time to come home for dinner. So he would see movies over and over and over again. And he has said that that is part of his makeup, that he has remembered so much from so many films that it's all laying there in the brain waiting to come out. And when we were doing Raging Bull, you could see that mind working. And then to, to put him with De Niro, you've got two guys going like that. Um, and, and it takes a long time to shoot their movies because they will figure out 10 different ways of how this one scene should work. And they'll shoot it all 10 ways. Then they throw it to Thelma to figure out which one kind of works the best, and she'll put that together. <laughs> And then Scorsese will come in and do, do a final cut on it. But uh, I, I would say a nice man, but you can see those creative world, uh, wheels going all the time. Um, the choice of black and white, I, I don't know how much of uh, you were aware of what was going on when the movie was being made, before it was being made. Was it Marty's decision? Was it the DP's? And did the studio give any pushback? No, that's it, my, it, would been, it would have been Marty's decision. To shoot it in black yeah, and white. Yeah, yeah. To, to be able to do the black and white and to, to do that little bit of color contrast at the point when you're doing it for the old films. Uh, I don't think the movie would have been as effective because it's, it's known as the uh, movie of the decade of the 80s. Uh, the black and white really made it effective. Although I got a call when I was uh, started on shooting uh, the movie Mask. Uh, I got a call from the president of Universal. I was, I was doing 2010. And I was on the stage at MGM, and the phone rings on the wall. And somebody goes, Frank Price is on the phone. I'm like, Frank Price, you know. Uh, and all he wanted to know was, will that makeup hold up under color? Uh, otherwise, he wanted to shoot that movie in black and white. And I said, I can do it in color, no big deal. He says, okay, thanks. And it was filmed in color. Uh, just don't, black and white movies don't make the kind of money that color movies do. So it's a big decision you know, to do that? Well, it's a, it's a good question, actually. It's, it's, uh, it was Billy Wilder's decision to do uh, Some Like It Hot mm-hmm. in black and white mm-hmm. because the, you know, transformation would not hold up in color. You can also do more interesting lighting. 
You look at your old black and white films from the 40s where you see light raking through, you know, and you start to see young, the young filmmakers today starting to go back and use some of these techniques where you just don't have lots of color and moving around. Um, the moods that can be set with shadows that just don't work in black and white and in color, you know. Okay. We have time for one more question. Did you compound all of your makeup or did you go uh, get a hold of Max Factor down on Hollywood? No, we don't, we don't compound it because it's, there's so much to it and there's so much that's being made. In fact, if you really want a good makeup, my daughter Mackenzie has a line of makeup called Westmore Beauty and it's on QVC. Um, <laughs> it actually is good. In fact, I wear it on face-off. <laughs> um, it's, it factor had the, the, the tubes, and now, though, you're mesmerized. I don't know where a makeup artist starts. You know, it's like with eyeshadows and things. Mac makes like 200 colors, and it's like, where do you figure out what colors to use? You know, it's like you, you wait for somebody to say, this is the color for the season. Uh, but the things that are available, it's, it, it's huge, and it's interesting that some of that real expensive stuff isn't any better than the less expensive things because the formulations on them are so close. Or the same company will make an A brand and a B brand, put different labels on them. Uh, you, you figure the cosmetic houses with that machinery cost so many millions of dollars that un, unless it's maybe Revlon or somebody that has their own plant, that the, so many of these makeups are all made by you know, one, one place. And guess what? When uh, some of my colleagues heard that I was going to be here with you, guess what the question was? How can we all look much younger? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, facelifts. I talk in the book about right. with a facelift. Uh, I had on Shelley Winters. Um, Shelley wanted me to leave Universal and go with her, but I had a steady job there. And with her, she was the first person that I made up after I became uh, a professional makeup artist after three years of apprenticeship. Uh, they said, you're going to make up Shelly Winters tomorrow. And I'm going, what? You know? And so they took me in to, to meet her, but they told me first that she wants to wear facial lifts. That's a, like a little piece of tape right. with a string on it, and you, you glue that down to the face, uh, or it could be gauze that's laid down the spirit gum. And the strings are all pulled to the crown of the head so you can pull. Now, Shelly's eyebrows are like that, so I had to put them above her eyebrows, pull her eyebrows up, Pull her nasal labial folds back, pull her, th her throat back and everything. And uh, it, it was a, and I'd never done it before. I didn't even know what the hell it was. So they showed me how to make them. I went home that night because I was living with my mom then. And I spent an hour doing her over and over again, gluing these things down, pulling her head up, you know. And so in the morning when I met Shelly, it's like I, I put these things on, I got them all pulled up and tied them down. And in 20 minutes, and she goes, is that all there is to it? She says, I've been having this done for years, and it takes a couple hours. So the makeup artist had really been drawing this process out like it was a great big big deal with it. So it, uh, Shelley got down to the, the, the set, and she's a wonderful lady to work with. Uh, and she was screaming that I had pulled her face up so, so hard, that, uh, or so high, that her, her boobs were standing up. Uh, <laughs> I think we don't have time for any other questions. 
but luckily, I mean, luckily this book is really terrific, I mean, I have to say. Yeah, my book's just, it's a bunch of, I mean, I literally, it took me 14 years to put together. In 2005, I asked my secretary for a pad of paper, and my office at Paramount was right across the street from stage 18, where Sunset Boulevard was filmed with Gloria Swanson, and where she pulls up and goes in and says, I'm ready for my close-up. And I was just staring out the window, so I, I started thinking about my life, and I literally wrote three legal pads that all is from the day I'm born until I was started my apprenticeship, which I have never transcribed, and then I continued on from there. And uh, I'd just go into a little room at the upstairs, and I would pick out it like Rocky, and I would write on it, and then I would find other things, or there's people like George Burns I only spent one day with, or Zsa, Zsa Gabor, but little things happened. So there's just like little pieces and bigger pieces, and I've worked with Bollywood and things, and uh, it was just fun putting it all together um, to see what would happen with it. That's terrific. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.